and the rest of us, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in Luke's Gospel, the third book of the New Testament, 20th chapter. We've gone as far as verse 40. So we'll pick it up there. We'll move actually into chapter 21 this morning. So Luke chapter 20. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll slip you a Bible. If you're towards the front, there's some on the front platform. Turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. We'll pick up where we left off to refresh your memory where we have traveled over the last few weeks in Luke's Gospel. Jesus, in his final days before his crucifixion, it is Passover week. The week started on Palm Sunday with Jesus riding on the back of a donkey down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, into the city of Jerusalem. We know the Gospel writers tell us that a great multitude followed Jesus from the Jordan Valley up that ascent to Jerusalem. There's already pilgrims that are in Jerusalem that they came out to meet him. We know that Matthew tells us that the whole city was moved where we get our word uh, seismic. It it was just uh, something that had never happened in Jerusalem before. This great multitude that are waving the palm branches. They're laying their clothes on the, the ground. They are crying out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now keep in mind that chapter 19 tells us as they were making that ascent with Jesus up to Jerusalem from Jericho that they were expecting him to usher in the kingdom immediately. So they are expecting that to take place. They are ascribing to him the title Messiah as they say, son of David, king of Israel. The religious leaders know that the people are quoting from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm, and they are angry. They are upset. They are telling Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus said, if these should be silent, the very rocks would immediately cry out. And he would weep over Jerusalem because they did not know the day of their visitation. So Jesus would look at the temple when he made his triumphal entry, leave for the night, go to Bethany's, uh, that little village a couple miles from Jerusalem, called the town of Mary, where Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived. And they, then the next morning, Jesus would come back. He would go into the temple. He would cleanse the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables. He would drive out those who bought and sold. And he would rebuke the religious leaders as he would cry out that my uh, Father's house, which is a house of prayer for all the nations, has now become a den of thieves. And it would be then the following day that we have seen that Jesus, verse 1 of this chapter, was there at the temple early in the morning. He is teaching the people. He is preaching the good news that is the gospel. That's what the religious leaders should have been doing. But Jesus there with that multitude that is before him, as Luke tells us that the people hung on to every word that he was speaking. They were listening intently as he preached the gospel. And all of a sudden, here comes the chief priests, the scribes, uh, the elders. They come to him in front of everybody. They ask him publicly, you know, by what authority do you do these things? Come riding into Jerusalem like that, cleansing the temple and rebuking us. What authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? And we saw the exchange that he had with them. And then he turned to the people and he told that parable, the wicked vine dressers. And the people knew that he was addressing those religious leaders. It would be after that that we see then the Pharisees and the Herodians came and they began to question him. 
So they question his authority. They begin to question his integrity. They come to him and they said, listen, we know as they came with uh, false pretense, they came, you know, uh, trying to deceive him. And they would say to um, Jesus that we know that you're one, that, that you speak truth. You show no personal favoritism and, and you know the ways of God. You teach rightly and all of this. Jesus knew that they were coming with a wrong motive, trying to trap him and trick him. And they're thinking if we can find him uh, or get him trapped in his words, we can go to the Roman authorities when we ask him this question about taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes or not? If he says don't pay taxes to Rome, then the Herodians, which were the political party that had an audience with Pilate, would go to the Roman authorities and say, you need to arrest that man that made his way into Jerusalem. And now he's telling the people not to pay their taxes to Rome. And that's one thing that Rome did not put up with. Somebody leading a rebellion against them telling people not to pay tribute to Caesar. So they're thinking, yeah, you know what? We got him trapped. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, we'll have him arrested. But if he says, yes, pay taxes to Rome, then the people are going to be disappointed and they are going to leave him. And then the people which we fear are gone and we can then put our hands on him and we can arrest him. So they didn't expect that Jesus was going to give a third answer. And that is as he took that tax money, that Darius, uh, Darius, that is, um, that is uh, to pay tribute to Caesar, then we see that he said, whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Render to God the things that belong to God. And the people marveled at his answer. And then last week we saw thirdly, not only are they questioning his authority, Uh, They're questioning his integrity. Now they question his theology. And it would be the Sadducees that came to him, the Sadducees that did not believe that there's a resurrection. And they ask him a question about the resurrection. And they give this scenario to him based on Deuteronomy chapter 25, that if a man, you know, uh, brother dies and having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife raising up offspring for his brother. And of course, we talked about that law that was given because inheritance was very important in ancient Israel and that the the wife would marry the the brother to have a child to perpetuate the dead brother's name, to, to continue the inheritance. Well, they give this scenario that in the resurrection, as this woman marries seven brothers, they don't have any children, whose wife is she going to be? All seven had her. And what they were trying to do is make the resurrection seem like it can be very confusing and turmoil and it's kind of ridiculous and all of this. And Jesus would speak to them and say, you're mistaken. And know this, that in that age, that is in the resurrection that you don't believe in, that we are not given to marriage. We will not be in marriage, that marriage state, um, but we will be like the angels, that is, not being married, not given to childbearing. And also he would say that in that eternal life, in that age, in the resurrection, you won't die either. And then he goes on and he says, you're mistaken by thinking that there is no eternity. Because that's what the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection, angels, they didn't believe in the coming Messiah, they didn't believe in the spirit world, they didn't believe in eternity, they didn't believe in much of anything. And he said, know this, you want to quote Moses, know this, that at the burning bush, the Lord said that I am the God of the living, not of the dead. 
So this is where we pick up our text. Having gone over all that to refresh your memory, after uh, that they dare not question him anymore is what verse 40 of the chapter tells us now. The meaning that they dare not takes on the meaning that they didn't have the courage to ask him. He answered them so well as they were trying to trap him in his words. And so with them done asking him questions, it is his turn. He's going to ask them a question to those religious leaders that are coming to him and hurling all these questions at him. We read that in verse 41. And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So Matthew adds that the people, you know, uh, here uh, marveled at his answer, that they were not the religious leaders able to answer him a word. Mark tells us that the common people heard him gladly. This is the last public appeal and challenge that Jesus makes to the religious leaders. After this, he's going to rebuke the scribes and the Pharisees as we will end the chapter. But Matthew records a whole chapter, chapter 23 to that, where he gives a series of eight woes. And then he's going to point out a widow in the temple court. Uh, We will see that as we begin chapter 21. And then after that, he will go to the Mount of Olives where he will give a teaching to his disciples about his return, his second coming. And then the next day he will have his last meal with his disciples. He will go to the garden. He will be arrested. And then he will begin a series of trials that will lead him to Calvary. But this at the end of the day, is his last public challenge at the temple proper to the people and to the religious leaders. The religious leaders have fired question after question to him, and he answered so well that he silenced the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the elders and the chief priests, and the people marveled. In this question that he gives to them, It's important for us to understand that Jesus is not trying to trap them. He's not trying to get a dig into them. He doesn't have the attitude of, well, you guys have been coming to me all day long, trying to trap me in my words, trying to have me arrested, trying to back me into a corner, you know, trying to trip me up, trying to have me arrested and all of this. He doesn't have that mindset that now I'm going to ask you a question so I can wreck you guys. I believe it is one last appeal to get them to think, to consider who he is. He is wanting to try to get any of them to look past all the religiousness that they were involved in, to be able to see who he really is. And as he realizes the hardness of the religious leaders, he will then turn to the people and he will warn them once again of their hypocrisy, as we will read in the following verses. So here Jesus says, I'm going to ask you guys a question. Who do you think uh, that the Christ is? What do you think of the Christ? That is the Messiah. That's what Matthew's account tells us. And he's not saying this angrily at them. But I think perhaps he has tears in his eyes. Whose son is he? And Matthew records that they said, well, he's the son of David. And then Luke picks it up here. How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said, in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's quoting from Psalm 110. 
Till I make my enemies their footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? The question that he is asking is, how can Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? And to understand what Jesus is trying to drive home here, we need to know what the thinking of the Jews was concerning the the coming of Messiah. Even the Jews today, the Orthodox Jews. You see, they accepted that the Messiah would be from the line of David, tracing his genealogy back to David, the son of David, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That was an acceptance of all the Jews that their Messiah would come in that you know, line of David. You know, blind Bartimaeus, as we read earlier, there in Jericho, that he heard that Jesus was passing by, and he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, son of David. In the triumphal entry, the reason that the religious leaders, again, were very upset, is because the people are calling out, son of David, son of David, king of Israel, ascribing to him that title of Messiah. So they knew that the Messiah was going to be from the line of David, the son of David. But they thought that Messiah was going to be a mere man. That he was going to be a national and political and military leader like David was. You see, if you go to Israel today, and we've made trips to Israel with our groups, as you know, and there are signs that you can see in different parts of Israel, particularly as you get over towards the Western Wall, as you get in the old city of Jerusalem, that are in Hebrew. But if, you know, as I asked the Hebrew guide, what does that say? He'll say that the sign tells us, get ready for Messiah is coming. And it's interesting that they have those signs that are up. So they're still looking for the Messiah to come. And I remember in one of our trips a few trips ago that we had a few hours of a free day and we were going through some of the shops in the old city of Jerusalem. We were talking to one of the owners of the shop and they love to talk to you. They love to talk to Americans. They love to talk to you when you come and you see Jerusalem and take a tour of the land. But close to his shop was one of those signs, get ready, Messiah is coming. So I asked them, I said, Concerning that sign, who do you see as Messiah? Who is he going to be? And he was answering. He said, well, we expect the Messiah to come, that he's going to be a man, that he's going to be a great political leader. He's going to be a peacemaker. He's going to secure peace for our nation. And he's going to allow our nation to blossom, to be restored to its fullness. And he's explaining all this. And you see, you got to understand they're tired of war. They've been under the threat of war and have gone through many wars since day one, 1948, May 14th. And they've been through the, the Independence War, the, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, two Lebanon wars. They're being threatened even today by the mullahs in Iran to wipe them off the face of the earth as they pursue nuclear weapons. We know that uh, you have all that situation in Syria with the Russian troops there and the Iranian troops that are just a few miles from their borders. Hezbollah in northern Lebanon on the border of Israel has tens of thousands of missiles that are pointed at Israeli cities. They are tired of war, and they're looking for a man that's going to bring them peace, who's going to bring economic prosperity, who's going to prosper Israel. And as he's telling all this, a couple guys that were with me, they're going, help me, man, that's an antichrist. 
Antichrist. That's the Antichrist. And I'm going, be quiet, be quiet, you know. Uh, be respectful. He's talking about the Antichrist. So, and it's interesting because in John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus said to those religious leaders that I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. And if another comes in my, in, in, if another comes, that is, in his own name, him you will receive. And many Bible teachers and commentators suggest that he is speaking and making specific reference to the coming Antichrist, who is going to come on a scene in that final seven-year period called Daniel's 70th week. He will make a peace treaty with Israel. He will seemingly bring peace to them. It will allow them to build their temple. He's going to be a political leader, an economic leader, a religious leader, and a military leader. And we know that as time goes on, in the middle of that final week, that he will show his true colors, the Antichrist. As 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, that he will go into the temple of God as they rebuild their temple. He will proclaim himself as God to be worshipped as God. And at that point, the Jews will reject him as their Messiah. He will reject him as God as he claims to be God. And he will make that declaration that the world is to worship me. It's a study for another time, but we are going to talk about some of these things next week as we're going to get into what's called the Olivet Discourse. As Jesus is going to be talking about his second coming, the signs of the end of the age, the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's the longest teaching that Jesus gave next to the Sermon on the Mount. So very important subject. It's one of the broadest subjects that we have in the New Testament. So here at this point, as, as he is trying to get them to think as he points to them the scripture, Psalm 110, you're men of the scriptures, you scribes and you Pharisees. You claim to know the scriptures. Think, as David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, that's what Mark's gospel records. And I point that out because there are those who will come along and they will say to you and me that the Psalms are just a nice set of poems. The Psalms are inspired by God. And even as we discussed on Wednesday, in these last days that are going to be perilous times, and they are, that evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. And there are going to be those that have a form of godliness but denying its power. There is going to be that deception that's going to come and counterfeit as he warns against Janbris and Janus and that resisted Moses. And we discuss all of those things. So, Timothy, what are you to do? You're to continue in the scriptures that you know from childhood, knowing this, that all scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed, and it is profitable. And we need to understand that this book that we have here, from Genesis to Revelation, is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. And if anybody comes along and says, well, that portion of scripture or the Psalms or those books aren't really inspired by God, then you know that they are deceiving you. Because that is a message more and more that we are hearing today. So here is Jesus putting his stamp of approval on the Psalms that are inspired by God. And he said, you know, David, that uh, to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David is showing that the Messiah and the scribes would agree in those Pharisees that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. That it spoke of, pointed to Messiah that was to come. David called the Messiah his Lord. You see, the Messiah would not only come from the line of David, the son of David, but also be the Lord of David. And that question 
that Jesus asked them is a question for every generation and for every individual. And our salvation and our eternal destiny is determined and how we answer that and what we believe in our hearts concerning Jesus. And I know that a vast majority of people that have come through the services this morning, that you do believe that he is the son of God, the one who came and died for our sins, was put into a grave and rose again, and that he has provided forgiveness of sin, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he's going to come and he's going to usher in his kingdom. And if you have not come to Jesus and surrendered your life to him, this is the appeal that I'd like to make to you. That you would open up your heart to him and your eyes to who Jesus really is. And his love for you as he came to die for you on that cross and he rose again to give you a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is your only hope. He is your salvation. There is none other. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be religious enough. You cannot have a church save you. Your parents being Christians will not save you. A pastor can't save you. Jesus is the only one that will save you. Because he went to the cross for you and he rose again. And he proved that he's the son of God. He validated what he did on that cross. And he says, call upon me and come to me and believe in me the Savior of the world. And eternity hinges on answering that and believing in who Jesus is. Jesus, one last time, is trying to get them to see exactly who he is. This is the last working day of Jesus to Israel. This is the last day in the temple. This is the last teaching and warning to the religious leaders. This is the last of his call to national repentance. And it is believed on this day that John chapter 12 records that the Greeks came to Andrew and Philip and said, we wish to see Jesus. Many of you know that, the text there. And Jesus told Andrew and Philip, you go and tell those Greeks that a grain, unless it falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus didn't say, okay, Andrew and Philip, let's go over this again. I want you to go and quote from them Psalm 110 because the Greeks didn't know the scriptures. And what he's telling the Greeks, that if they really want to see me, they must see me in the light of my death and burial and resurrection. And he is trying to get all to see who he is, the one who came who's going to die for their sins and rise again from the grave. And some of the Pharisees actually ended up becoming believers after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But listen, for you who have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there will be a last day for you. And if you have not come to Jesus Christ and accepted him and believe in him as your Lord and Savior, it will then be too late. Give your life to him. Open your heart to him. And so they refused to acknowledge who he was. There are those today that just see Jesus as a religious leader from history or a great moral teacher or a great philosopher, or an example of how it is that we are to live. Even religious leaders that are behind the pulpit that will say that, you know what, they'll disclaim the resurrection, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the divinity of Jesus Christ. There are those who will say, oh, we believe he's the son of God, but he's a created being. He's the brother of Lucifer is what the Mormons will say, or he's Michael the archangels is what the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you and me. 
And there are many that will fall short of the critical point of his divinity, that he was God in human flesh, and that's what set him apart from all men and who qualified him to be the Savior of the world. There is no other Savior. And these religious leaders would end up rejecting their own Messiah, and in a few days they're going to hand him over to be crucified, and it will lead to their own ruin. They claimed to be the experts in the Scriptures, but they were blind to the Scriptures that spoke of their Messiah. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. And their religion ended up just being external observance and not internal transformation in relationship with God. And Matthew, as he records the rebuke of the religious leaders, that he would then give a lamentation. He would weep once again. He would weep over the unbelief of the nation. They had many opportunities, and now Jesus is going to withdraw from them at this point. And I wonder, the religious leaders, who was in that crowd? Was it Joseph of Arimathea? That one, in a few days... They were told that he was a secret disciple. And then he says, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And I'm going to take care of the body of Jesus and put him in my tomb that I own that's never been used. And Jesus only borrowed the tomb for three days. And he rose again. But Joseph of Arimathea would end up risking his reputation, his position, because he comes out and he says, I'm going to ask for the body of Jesus. And who went with him? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the master teacher of Israel that came to Jesus at night and and said, we know that you're from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. I wonder if Saul of Tarsus was there listening to Jesus here. Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, sat under the teaching of Gamaliel, who would cause havoc on the early church in the early years. And that word havoc there in the book of Acts means that he was like a wild animal out of control. He was after blood, and he went after the Christians until he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he would be known as the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus looking at them with love in his heart, and he looks at you. You who may be listening to this message with great love, who hasn't accepted him. And he wants you to open up your heart to him as he's knocking on the door of your heart. To be your personal Lord and Savior. Don't harden your heart to the Lord, even as Hebrews 3 says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And Jesus said, I would long to gather you, but you are not willing to come as he wept for the nation. So knowing their hearts are hard, he re- they refuse to believe. He gives that last warning to the people uh, about the religious leaders as we read in verse 45. And then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes and the desire to go around in long robes. Love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, and these will receive greater condemnation. And so here, the religious leaders had missed it not only in who Jesus 
was, but what they were to be about. Outwardly, they looked so righteous and religious with all the rituals and the ceremonies and the wearing of the long robes. And they would stand on the street corners and they would say their long prayers so the people would be impressed. And when they gave to the, their contribution to the collection box, oftentimes what they would do is they would summon a trumpeter to go before them to get everybody's attention to be seen of men as they put their money in the treasury box and everybody would see them say, oh, they're so spiritual. They're long prayers and they stand in the, the, the marketplaces fasting. They look all gaunt and, and they blow a trumpet before they give. They're so spiritual. They're so righteous. Same thing can happen today when it comes to giving. Church services that, that I've seen on TV where the pastor stands up and says, I know that there's 10 people here in the audience that are going to give $1,000 a piece. I want you to stand up. And they stand up, and everybody's clapping and applauding, and they're waving their check and all of this. And, well, you just received your reward. Jesus is saying, beware of this false expression of godliness. They love the best seat in the synagogue. They love the pomp. They love to rule over the people. It was something that Paul the Apostle dealt with with the Corinthian church and one of the main reasons why he wrote the second letter to them because there were those who had come into the church that called themselves most eminent apostles. In the Greeks, the Corinthians were so interested in appearance and oratory skill and they came, man, they had great oratory skills. They were ones that their appearance uh, was something to be, you know, uh, that the Corinthians looked at and admired. And then they began, those most eminent apostles, by the way, Paul says, you're false apostles. Look at Paul, they said. His speech is contemptible. Look at him. He's wearing those sweaty tent-making clothes and put Paul down. And Paul begins in that letter to write about his ministry. It's the most personal letter that we have in all the epistles. How they came, he said, in much suffering, taking nothing from you guys, not peddling the word of God, but giving you the gospel freely. And he said to them that we're not here to rule over you. You see, that's what those false apostles were doing. They were ruling over the people with a heavy hand. They were even punching the people in the face. He said, you put up with it. And the more that I love you guys, the less I'm loved by you. And I'm not here to rule over you, but to be a helper of your joy. Those religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they came to be served, not to serve. They wanted to be first, not last. They exalted himself. They did not humble themselves. And it was even the disciples that was falling into that trap because in chapter 22, we're going to see on the last night that Jesus spends with them before his crucifixion that they're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They had been having that argument for the last several months. So Jesus, knowing they're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to sit on his left and on his right, that he would gird himself with a towel and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And when he was done, he said, I've done this as an example to you. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you wash people's feet. You serve them. There's a natural tendency in us that we want those places of honor, we want the titles, we want to impress people, 
We want to talk godly, and we want to let people how much we know the scriptures, and we want to seem religious, and all together, we want to be noticed, but we can be so far from God. And we need to understand again and be reminded what true greatness is in the kingdom of God, that that is the one who's the servant of all, the one who humbles himself, the one who exalts others above themselves, the one who is looking out not only for their own interests, but the interests of others. And to remember what Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 tells us, that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him, looking for a heart that loves him, desires to walk with him, and to live for him. So Jesus now leaves. He leaves the people. He leaves the religious leaders in chapter 21. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. As we enter into the chapter here, Jesus at the end of a very long day, it is getting late in that, that most of the people are leaving the temple area to retire for the night. Jesus began today, this day here, by teaching early at the temple. The religious leaders come to him, begin to challenge him, hurling all their questions at him. It is the end of the day now. He gives his final rebuke. He's about ready to leave the temple precincts, cross over to Kidron, back to the Mount of Olives, where he's going to talk to his disciples about the signs of the end of the age, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, his second coming. But before that, he re- he, before he retires to the Mount of Olives, he goes and he's walking across the temple proper. He crosses the court of the Gentiles, a large court, and then another large court called the Court of the Women. There would be during the day thousands of worshipers are there. But Jesus, as he looks there into the court of the women, he notices one, as most of the people are gone, one who is a widow and one who is poor. And I just want to say this. Maybe you're here. And maybe as we consider this, because I think nobody else noticed her, but Jesus did. And you might be thinking, nobody notices me. But I want you to know that Jesus does. For you who feel alone, for you who are poor of spirit, he sees you, he loves you. His eyes are on you. And in that court, the court of the women, there would be a number of chests, boxes for them to put in their offering. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was sitting opposite the treasury. He's sitting there, and in his humanity, he is tired. He is tired, and he is sitting there as he's been busy all day because when he was teaching there at the temple, he'd be standing all day. The religious leader is coming against him and he's looking down and then Luke picks it up and he says, he looked up. And he looked up and he saw how the people were giving. He looked up and he, he saw how they were giving out of their abundance and as we look at this, he also saw how she was giving. As we consider this, he watched how they gave. And I think that that's a key in considering this little vignette. Jesus is interested in how we give. 
And again, as Paul was dealing with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, when they were to give, that let each one give as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, that is compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus, just getting through, ending the day with all these questions, one of those questions being that should we pay taxes? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God. And all of a sudden here at the end of the day, he sees a beautiful example of one, this beautiful widow who is giving all to the Lord. And I think it's no accident that the gospel writers record that she had two mites, two copper coins, because she could have kept one. And held it back. But she gave all. She gave both of them. So what does it mean for you and for me today? When Paul was addressing the Corinthians, he was talking about the example of the churches of Macedonia. That would be the church of Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. They were some of the earliest Christians that were persecuted. He said, you Corinthians, consider how they're given. They're giving out of their poverty out of their persecution. They are given freely and willingly, and they are given sacrificially. I think of the Old Testament example of David. In the last chapter of 2 Samuel, a plague had passed through the land of Israel. David was instructed to build an altar and to make a sacrifice to God. And he goes to a man named Ornan. He's a Jebusite. And he says, I want to purchase uh, your piece of property to build an altar and to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And Ornan says, good, that'd be great. The plague is terrible. Take the property, offer a sacrifice. It's yours to have, King David. And David looked at Ornan and said, I will pay the full price for I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And David, who was the man after God's own heart, reveals the kind of heart that God is pleased with when we give, when we give cheerfully and freely, sacrificially. Sometimes people will say to me, well, we'll give, you know, after I get that, I need to get a better car. Or once I get a promotion. Or once we're a little better off financially. And the giving that we do and are to give to him is between you and the Lord. And we're not just talking about money. We're talking about our devotion, our time, our gifts, our abilities. Are we giving to the Lord cheerfully and freely, sacrificially? Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And as Jesus points this widow out for all eternity, because it's written in the word, that then he's going to go to the Mount of Olives, and then in a few days he's going to give his life, his all, for you and for me. That we have a living hope now. And how can we not give to him? How can we withhold from him? And we have seen that Jesus has talked a whole lot over the last few weeks as he's gotten closer to Jerusalem about being good stewards of what the Lord has given to us and the parable of the minus and the parable of the unjust steward and all these things reminding us that we are to invest in what has been given to us. We are entrusted with the resources he's given to us, our time, our abilities, our gifts, our devotion to him, our worship to him, and we are going to give an account for that. 
Have we been good stewards of what the Lord has given to us? And what we do for Christ, that is what's going to last. So I want to encourage you. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And one of the things that you will find, that he will bless you, it's the only area that he says in given financially in the Old Testament, a given of the tithe, he says, test me in this area. Test me to see that, that I won't open up the storehouses of heaven. Now, Prosperity guys love to use that to get you to give, you know, plant a seed faith so you'll get a hundredfold. Listen, you'll find out you can't outgive God. And what you do for Christ and how you invest in the things of the kingdom, that's what's going to last for eternity because everything else is going to go away. Listen, the cars, the homes, the titles, you know, the popularity, all that's going to go away. What you do for Christ, that's what's going to last for eternity. Store up your treasure in heaven. Send it ahead. Invest in the kingdom. And you're going to find that the Lord's going to bless you tremendously. So, Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus. We thank you for these words to consider for all of us. There are times where we want to just seem religious and when our hearts aren't right with you or... We hold back from you, Lord. When Jesus gave his life for us, the Father sending his Son so that we can spend eternity with you, how can we hold back our hearts and devotions? But, Lord, we have a tendency to do that. 